We are in Acts chapter 16. There are Bibles in the back. Uh, we're reading from the ESV version. Um, there are Bibles in the back by the sound booth. Grab one. If you don't have one, please grab one and take it home with you. Um, that's our gift to you. We'd like to make sure everyone has a Bible that they can read and be able to know and love Jesus. So we're in Acts chapter 16. Actually, this morning, uh, we're finishing up this chapter. Our text is um, Acts 16, 19 through 40. So we're finishing up chapter 16. We're in verse 19 where we left off, and we will go through the rest of the chapter. Let me bring everybody up to speed quickly here. Paul is an apostle. He's on a second missionary journey. He had left Syrian uh, Antioch at the end of chapter 15 where where he left with Silas, and before that he got into a debate, if you remember, with Barnabas. They had a heated discussion over whether or not they should take John Mark. Um, that debate ended with them going in different directions. Barnabas took John Mark and went to his hometown in Cyprus. Paul took Silas and headed northwest, uh, first to Derby and then to Lystra, where he picked up Timothy. And then after having him circumcised, remember, he was half Jew, half Greek. Paul had a trouble, uh, you know, thought there would be trouble getting into the synagogues with someone who is Jewish and not circumcised. So he had him circumcised, and then they headed westward into Asia Minor, which we looked at last week. Okay, if you remember, um, as Paul was, was walking, and because there was no cars back then, obviously, when Paul was heading west in Asia Minor, the triune God, one God, three three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, uh, forbid him to go south to Ephesus as he's heading across Asia Minor. And then uh, God forbid him to go north to Bithynia. So Paul and his 500 and something uh, journey west wound up and found himself at a coastal place in Asia Minor called Troas. Chapter 15 and chapter 16. Um, it was there at Troas that Paul received a vision God was revealing to Paul what the next move was going to be. He waited till he got to Troas, and he gave him a vision of an unknown man. We don't know who he was uh, in uh, in Macedonia, telling him, which is in Europe, to come to Macedonia, come and preach the gospel there. And in verse eleven of chapter sixteen, we see Paul and his ministry uh, team obeying the Lord, doing just what the Lord told him to do, which we should do. And God speaks, we should obey. Um, and, and heads out to Europe, to Macedonia, stops at an island of Samanthrace, and then goes to a coastal city in Neapolis. About eight or ten miles, uh, they travel some more and wind up in Philippi. That's where we're at. We're in Philippi. Remember, Philippi is a very important city, uh, huge in um, natural resources, very big in natural resources, timbers, metals, golds. Uh, Philippi was a strong military colony of Rome giving the city a dominant, um, uh, predominant Roman, Italian flavor to it. In fact, the citizens of Philippi were considered full Roman citizens, and we'll see how that comes into play today. Our text this morning is that continuing work of Paul while he was on mission, spirit-empowered mission, declaring and demonstrating the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what a church is about. That's what Christians are about. Living on mission with Jesus, seeking and saving the lost, right? That's what Jesus is about. That's what we're about. We said last week that this narrative in uh, Acts chapter 16, while Paul is at Philippi, reveals to us the work of the sovereign God. And, and importantly as well is the power of the gospel. It's not only sovereign work of God, but the power of the gospel coming to and changing, coming to and changing three very different 
people. They were different ethnically, they were different socially, biologically, culturally, and economically. All right there in Philippi. Last week, we said, uh, we looked at two of the three people that God came to and opened their heart and, and they received the gospel and we'll look at the final one today. So our outline in our text will be the same as last week because we only dealt with two of the uh, people that the power of the gospel comes into their life and changes them. So, same outline. The persons whom God changes, the power of God that changes them, and then the particular results of the change. So we're going to look at that third person that Christ comes and the power of the gospel changes them, okay? How it comes, look at the power that it comes in and also the change that took place. So that's where we're at this morning, okay? Number one, the person whom God changes. Now, if you remember, verse 11 through, excuse me, verse 13 through 15, we see Paul's first encounter while he's at the city of Philippi with the gospel, it was a custom of Paul to go into the synagogues, and he does that um, in the beginning of Philippi. He's looking for a synagogue. He waits for the Sabbath, and what he find is a, not a synagogue, but a bunch of women who had gathered outside the city gate to have a prayer meeting, have a Bible study. We said last week that in those days it took 10 men to start a synagogue, and obviously there wasn't enough men, Jewish men, in that city. So these women decide, look, we're going to have a prayer group. We're going to meet, and we're going to share the word of God together. And then Paul shows up and speaks to a woman. Her name is Lydia. The Bible says she's a seller of purple, which means she's a well-to-do woman. Purple was recognized to be with loyalty and royalty and upper-class people. She was born in Thyatira, which, had, which was in Asia Minor, that had a lot of um, the stuff to, to dye cloth with. So she was a businesswoman, she was a traveling woman, she was a worshiper of God, she was a moral woman, and we said that last week. She's probably very disciplined, smart, decent, and, and, and spiritual, and rich. She was a well-to-do woman, and the Bible says that God opened her heart, you see that? God opened her heart to respond to the gospel. God shows her the treasure and the glory of Christ. And when the will sees the treasure and the glory of Christ, the will responds with faith and trust in Christ. In verses 16 through 18, though, we see another encounter with the gospel by Paul with this young, early teenage slave girl. She had what was called a pneuma pneuma. Penthona, a spirit python. It was mythology. It had to do with Greek mythology. In other words, she had this demonic spirit that helped her to tell the future. And she was making a lot of money for her slave owners. Young girl, 12, 13 maybe. But she was not only a spiritual slave, she was literally a physical slave. She actually was owned by other men. We don't know how. Most likely she was sold into slavery by her family to get out of a debt. That's what they used to do back then. So we have this young teenage, young 12, 13-year-old girl in the struggles, battling with evil forces and a steep sense of rejection from her family. She's economically oppressed, enslaved, and exploited. Paul turns her one day and had enough. He's annoyed. Come out of her. He commands the demon to come out. And the expulsion power of the gospel sets her free. So we have two people here, a young woman and an older woman. Lydia, high-class, moral businesswoman, slave girl, druggie, looking for her next trick, right? Being exploited by other men. Lydia comes to faith through the gospel, through a prayer group, a Bible study. Paul comes and shares. God opens her heart. 
The slave girl every day. You are the yelling at Paul. Paul gets annoyed and finally demands and commands the spirit to come out of her. And she is set free. Now verse 19 of our text tells us what happens next. Verse 19. But when her owners, the slave girl's owners, notice it's plural. This young teenage girl owned by several men saw that their hope of gain was gone. She was free. They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace. Right? Dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews. They are disturbing our city. Verse 21. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us Romans to accept or to practice. Okay? So see what's happening here? This owner... The owner of this slave girl, they're not happy that this young teenage, spiritually oppressed, exploited little girl was free from her demonic oppression. All they cared about was the money. Reminds me of a story that Luke already told, because Luke's the author of Acts. Back in Luke 8, if you remember the story, a demonically crazy, naked dude hanging out in the, in the tombs, terrorizing the city comes running to Jesus. You know the story? He's out of this graveyard. And like the little girl, he cries out, Jesus, son of the most high God, I beg you, do not torment me. Remember, the Bible says that demons believe and they shudder. They know more about theology than we do. They just hate what they know, right? We said that last week. They just hate what they know. Jesus sets him free. The legion of demons... Jesus commands the demons to come out and sends them into the herd of swine, remember? And the herd of swine runs down the hill and they run right into the lake and they drowned. Right down in and drowned. And rather than being happy that the city was now no longer terrorized by a naked man in the tombs, they're concerned about their bacon, right? And the, the, rather, rather, what did you do to our pigs? You got to leave now, they tell them. Because, you know, it doesn't matter. This guy now is sitting right mind, clothed, and normal. But we don't have bacon for our cheeseburgers, so we're not happy. Well, that's what happens here. This young 12-year-old, 13-year-old is being demonized, sets free, and they're like, you just took some money out of my pocket. Now, before we judge, let's relate. I know you guys don't like to hear me say that because you know what's coming next. Could it be, sometimes, we are more worried and concerned about the most stupidest things and fail to see the hurting people around us? Everybody could say yes, and then we'll move on. Okay, because <laughs> it's true. So this little girl owners, this plural, gets angry, and they trump up charges against Paul and Silas. The first was this anti-Semitic comment, right? They were hoping, like, you know, to, to, to raise some concern and get people riled up because of prejudices. They did not like Jewish people. They were just a, it was a, a Roman colony. Rome had just had the, uh, an expulsion of the Jews, which they had many of them, but one was not too far from here, uh, time frame-wise. So they had this president that said, these men are Jews. These men are Jews. So if you don't have anything, just try to get a prejudiced crowd all gathered together in the frenzies and just say, these men are Jews. It was an anti-Semitic kind of pointing finger. Second thing he says is rather ambiguous, trying to get everybody up in an uproar. They say they are disturbing the city. They're disturbing the city. They're coming here. They got one little slave girl. They rebuke the demon. Now they're disrupting the whole city. 
Then the last charge, the third charge, is they are advocating customs unlawful for us Romans. All right, so what they're trying to do is get this city in a frenzy. And now, if they can't get everybody upset because they don't have any money, they're trying to get those in charge to be upset that they are now somehow doing something illegal, which is not true. Paul and Silas were not doing anything illegal. There is nothing illegal at that moment, at this time, and they're in this narrative that was against proselyting for Judaism or even Christianity. But they were looking to trump up charges. So, and it worked, it worked. Verse 22, the crowd joined them in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. All right? So the magistrates called the officers, that were actually in that day they were called lictors, L-I-C-T-O-R-S, which means rod beaters, okay, in Latin. They were, they were responsible to the magistrates. They were the officers to inflict punishment. They were the enforcement officers. It's actually where we get the expression, getting your licks from, okay? The symbol, check out the symbol, was a bundle of rods, wooden rods, with an axe protruding from the middle, tied together with a red band, and around it it said, fasces. F-A-S-C-E-S. Maybe it sounds familiar from the fascist movement. Mussolini used that same uh, uh, symbol or something very close to it. Right? These rods were not decorative. Like the cross we wear is a decorative sign. I get that. But not during Jesus' day. Same with this symbol. This wasn't decorative. This was rods because they were using them to punish people and beat people. That's what it was about. Um, and, and they would openly beat people. They, they they take Paul, they bring him to the marketplace, and they, and they beat him. Actually, there's been excavations in Philippi, and they found the place where they believe the Agora was, this, 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 courtroom, this courtyard. It had steps going up. There was a place for a podium. Right across was a jail, right in Philippi. And isn't it interesting, though, isn't it interesting that Satan tries to get Paul off his game through this girl, Loses the battle, and very quickly it turns from a spiritual oppression to a physical persecution. He doesn't stop. The Bible says he roars around, looking for someone to devour. So without any trial, there's no really resemblance of any fair hearing at all. Paul and Silas are then stripped and beaten. Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians. And it's not just like kicked and punched and beaten. The rods they used were as thick as a man's thumb, wrapped in a bundle. Their backs were bare, and they would beat the men, ripping their backs wide open. Sometimes even you could see the organs through the back. We're talking about beaten severely. Beaten severely. Bloody and raw. Then without any medical attention, they probably threw their shirts back on them and into the prison they go. Now remember, I said this last week and I think it's important we say it again. Pharisees, Paul's a Pharisee, before he became a Christian, one of his prayers, regular prayers would be, Lord, thank you that I am not a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. So far, a woman and a slave have come to faith in Jesus Christ. And now we have the third one here is the Gentile prison guard, jailer. Now, what can we say about the jailer? Well, it just so happens that I'm a jailer. So th- that might help a little bit. 25 years in the prison system I spent. Um, 
doing it myself. But back in those days, jailers were retired former soldiers, right? They would have fought in the Roman army. They were men of valors. They were warriors. And as they got up in years and maybe couldn't keep up, you know, keep up with the younger fellas, they're like, look, you can't keep up. You've you got to wait for you all the time. We're trying to take this hill, and you're breathing hard, and you, can't, you, know, you just can't come along. So what we're going to do, we're going to send you back to the city, and what you're going to do is you're going to watch the jails. You could just sit around, nice, you're a tough guy, you're a warrior. Watch the prisons, and you'll be good. So they got like a government job after, after retirement, not too bad. They would give them what, what we call a turnkey. We would turn the key. That's all they would do. Lock the doors. But he's a tough guy. He's entrusted to watch and keep peace in the prison. He has proven himself in battle. And so he's given the job to keep the prisoners in line. But the prison guard here was, we, I think we can fairly say, or at least confidently say, was rather a brutal man who took matters into his own hands. In fact, in verse 24, if you look there with me, it says he placed Paul and Silas in the inner prison and put their feet in the stockade, or the stocks. Maybe some of you have been to Williamsburg and you see the stocks or maybe uh, the stockades or maybe in Disney they have the mock stockades before and you, you sit on the bench and you put your feet in. That's not, what, <laughs> that, that's not what's happening here. That may happen in America but not in Europe in this day. In this day the stocks were for your feet and they would have several of them because they wanted to spread your legs as far as they possibly can go. So you would be spread out as far as you can then they would lock your ankles in the stockades, okay, as a part of, of, of being tortured, okay, another method of torturing, so as far back as they can, so here is Paul and Silas being beaten profusely, clothes being put on their back, probably drying at this point, you know how that clot and stuck to your clothes, in a dungeon, and in the deepest part of the prison where there is no air, no light, Legs probably incredibly cramped, unable to move. Try to spread your legs really, really far and keep them locked there. And you can't move them. No one told the jailer to do this. Verse 23 simply says, put them in jail, keep them safe. So he did this. He don't lift a finger to clean their wounds. He puts them in the box, in the hole, in the darkest place, no light, no air. He wasn't told to do that. It was something he wanted to, I don't know, maybe, maybe. I've been in prison 25 years. Maybe he wanted to show off. He wanted to show everybody how tough he was. Don't mess with him. Maybe it was his boss was watching. He wanted to show his boss how tough he was. But he didn't care about Paul and Silas. And in the jail he goes. And in the stockade they go. There's no indication either in this text that this tough military, ex-military prison guard who, is, who just could care less about Paul and Silas had any opportunity at this point to hear the gospel. I, I don't think Paul and Silas said a word to him. I don't think he was open. I think Paul and Silas knew that. They took their beating. They went into the prison by the hands of this man. Now, Lydia was open. This man is closed. Lydia was being drawn in by the father. At this point, doesn't seem like anything else is going on. So that is the person whom God changes. Look what happens next, verse 25. Now, think this through, okay, with me? About midnight, Paul, Silas, beaten with rods, bloodied, dark dungeon, spread out in pain, are praying, singing hymns to God 
and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly, verse 26, there was a great earthquake so that the foundation of the prison was shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds was unfastened, were unfastened. Verse 27, then the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open. He drew his sword and was about to kill himself supposing that the prisoners had escaped. So unlike Lydia, Paul had to wait for this power, this manifestation of God to to show itself before he can speak to the jailer. Now, I I, I think it's easy to look at this text. If if you're studying, you're looking at it, and you're seeing how does God come to this, this jailer, this tough Roman Gentile jailer, and say that earthquake rocked them. But I don't think that's the case, at least not right away. I think what was happening to him was that when Paul was Silas, it was the way in which Paul and Silas were handling the severe and very cruel persecution and totally undeserved punishment that began to crack this soldier, jailer, heart open. He witnessed in the face of tremendous cruelty, joy, compassion, Peace, kindness, goodness. They're singing. Singing hymns and praying to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Like, really? Tertullian of Church Father said this about this event. The legs feel nothing in the stocks when the heart is in heaven. You know what else is in telling about this? If you, if, you, if you underline your Bible, the word listening, that verb, listening, it indicates they were listening with pleasure. They were listening to, with pleasure, like, like they were listening to a recital. You go to your kid's recital, there's joy in your heart. It was wondrously attractive to them. It brought calmness to the jail. And don't think for a moment that the jailer didn't hear. I think it was their singing and hymnals worshiping that put him to sleep. Let me tell you, it's not a big prison. We're not talking about like this prison you see on 84, these giants. It's a little city, a little jail, small place. Don't tell me he didn't hear. There are no prison, there are no secrets in prison. Not even today. He knew, he heard. He knew and heard. And this prison guard witnessed the power of the gospel in the life of Paul and Silas as they sang and worshiped with great joy in the midst of persecution, in the midst of cruelty, in the midst of affliction. And when the earthquake shook, the doors opened, the inmates' uh, chains fell off, and they were free. There was those who would say, if you read their, their commentaries on this story, you know, earthquakes were common in that area, so they'd feel it was just one of those common things that happened in that area because it was, it was common to have a, an earthquake, a natural phenomenon. I would say nonsense. First of all, earthquakes are under, all earthquakes are under the supreme authority and sovereignty of God. So God didn't wake up and go, what was that? I felt something move. You know, it doesn't work that way. Secondly, I don't think all earthquakes unshackle prisoners when they're in jail and unlock doors. I've been in prison 25 years, I said. There were lightning storms in the jails I was at, all wire and metal everywhere, and I always wondered, if the lightning struck the fence, with all the doors open, that probably wouldn't be really good if that happened. But hopefully they'll lock closed. I don't know. But this is the work of the omnipotent God. The jailer knew it. 
But that is not all that the jailer came to see. Not only did they see and witness the power of the gospel in this way in which they were handled, and the way in which Paul and Silas handled the cruelty, cruelty right, under, under the persecution, plus the earthquake, but also how Paul and Silas responded after the earthquake, right? They had a chance at that moment to get revenge. It's, it's our due. Doors are open. We're freed. Verse 27. When the jailer woke up and saw that the prison doors were open, what did he do? He drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. When the jailer thought that the prisoner had escaped, he was going to kill himself because in that day, in that day, if you lose a prisoner and escapes on you while he's under your watch, you die. And in this shame, uh, uh, deeply held shame culture, he thought, you know what? I'm not going to die at the hands of my, of, of, of my fellow soldiers of, of the Roman. I'm just going to kill myself. That's why he wanted to kill himself. He'd take his own life. But what happens? Paul cries out to him, do not harm yourself, verse 28, for we are all here. And the jailer called, listen, get some lights in there. They rush in, and trembling with fear, he falls down before Paul and Silas. And Paul's like, don't do it. Don't kill yourself. Now think with me for a minute. Track with me. What the jailer, what I would think, is at least they would escape. Or at least they would either escape, take the jail over. They're all the prisoners are free. Minimally, that was expected. But they knew, the jailer knew, Paul and Silas knew, that the opportunity for them to get vengeance for payback was right there. All they had to do is walk out of the jail, they didn't have to touch the man, and leave. The man would have killed himself or they would have killed him the next day. They had an opportunity. But the jailer knew, Paul and Silas knew, that they had saved the man's life by staying right where he was. He was quite aware that Paul and Silas did not repay evil with good, but repaid good, evil with good. They did not pay evil with evil. They knew that Paul and Silas could have done evil, but instead, instead of evil, they did good. That's what they see. They treated, listen, I want you to see this narrative. I want you to see that they could have left and that, that this man would have taken his life or they would have killed him. Paul and Silas treated the merciless with mercy. He treated the cruel with kindness. He treated the brutal with compassion. The heartless with forgiveness. He was blown away. He falls down and he rushes in. What must I do to be saved? You guys are singing. You guys are worshiping. This rock, this place got rocked by an earthquake and here you are sparing my life. Forgiving me of what I've done to you. On Monday, December 9th, 2013, the Associated Press wrote this. This is the headlines. Mother of a gunman who killed five Amish girls in 2006, cares for the survivors of the Sons Massacre. Strasburg, Pennsylvania. The article writes, Once a week, Terry Roberts spends time with a 13-year-old Amish girl named Rosanna, who sits in her wheelchair and eats through a tube. 
Terry Roberts bathes her, sings to her, reads her story. She can only guess what's going on inside Rosanna's mind because the girl can't talk. Robert's son did this to her. Several years ago, Charles Carl Roberts IV barricaded himself inside an Amish schoolhouse near Lancaster, tied up 10 girls and opened fire, killing five and injuring five others before committing suicide as police closed in. The Amish responded by offering immediate forgiveness to the killer, even attending his funeral embracing the family. Terry Roberts, the mother of the son, forgave two. And now she is sharing her experience with others, saying the world needs more stories about the power of forgiveness and the importance of seeking joy through adversity. She says, I realize if I didn't forgive him, I would have the same hole in my heart that he had. A root of bitterness never brings peace to anyone. We are all called to forgive, end quote. The jailer came to realize that Paul and Silas believed that Jesus Christ died on the cross, died forgiving his murderers, and as a result, those who follow him, the one who died to forgive their murderers, has that at the center of their life. Forgiveness is always, always substitutionary. You know, there's no philosophy, there's no ideology, there's no political views or any other religion that has at the center of it someone who died and then forgives those who killed him and all his enemies. Forgiveness is always substitutionary. It's giving up the right for vengeance. It's an act of self-renunciation, renouncing your right that you have to pay harm to those who've hurt you. It always costs. It's releasing the offender of ever having to experience by you, whether in deed or in thought, the wrongdoing, absorbing the cost, letting the person off the hook. Forgiveness involves a commitment to resolve, a resolve to live with the consequences without demanding retribution. Unfortunately, the culture we live in is really self-assertation. You have rights, assert yourself. The jailer came to realize that Christianity is not a culture of self assertion but self-denial that's countercultural, but people do that for the cause of christ you see a culture of self-assertion requires retribution you did this to me you owe me that's the culture but a culture of self-denial and self-renunciation is and demands forgiveness the jailer had come to see that his prisoners had a hope and a power that he didn't have There was something in their lives. There was a power. There was something that caused these men to be beaten, to take their beating, to be uh, uh, thrown in prison, to sing praise to God, to have the doors open up, and then to forgive. And this tough guy got to see the real strength and the real greatness of the power of the gospel through Paul and Silas and the way they lived out their lives. And he falls down. What must I do to be saved? Notice what he says, what must I do? That's the human heart. What must I do to be saved? There's something I got to do. It can't be for free. Reminds me of Luke 18, rich young ruler, remember? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus, I have all this money. Look how good I'm doing. Look how well I'm doing. I'm well off. I'm a rich young ruler. I got fame. I got posture. I've got, you know, I got it all. Tell me what I got to do. Jesus is like, you don't get it. Let me, let, me, let me just tell you about your idol. He's not saying rich is the bad, but he said, let me tell you about your idol. Sell that you have, give to the poor, follow me. And what happened? The man walked away. 
You know, we love to credit ourselves, our successes and our achievement on our own effort. The jailer probably didn't have a lot of money. He probably didn't have much as the rich young, uh, Lydia or the rich young ruler. He probably had more money than the slave girl. He's probably a blue-collar guy working a job every day. Government's probably taking care of him. He's probably doing fine. Probably doesn't need a whole lot. You know what I mean? Probably don't need a whole lot. But one thing he didn't have is the gospel. One thing he didn't have is the assurance of salvation. So what must I do? The jailer knew that Saul and Paul and Silas had something he did not have. The ability to face persecution and cruelty. There was a connection. I need that. I want that. I see that in your life. What must I do to be saved? Roman soldiers were about doing. Roman themselves were about doing. What must I do? And Paul said, listen, there's nothing you can do. There's only someone you can believe in. There's nothing you can work toward. You can't earn this. There's someone that you are to rely upon. His name is Jesus. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You and your household. Paul is saying there's something outside of you that saves you. And if we're honest, we'll all ask that question. What must I do to be saved? Because I can't fix myself. In AA, the first two steps, we admit we are powerless over our problem. We admit we are powerless over our problem. Our lives have become unmanageable. You can't do it yourself. Step two, we come to believe that a power greater than ourselves, because I can't do it myself, could restore me to sanity. That's the place we need to be in. We've been told a lie, folks, that we could fix ourselves. We don't have a problem. We want to be our own lords, our own saviors, trying to justify our own lives. It doesn't work. Truth is, we're all sinners, we're all flawed from the inside, and we need help desperately from the outside. His name is Jesus. Believe, trust, fall upon the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. It's a free gift by grace, you can't earn it. It's for the rich, it's for the poor, it's for the woman, it's for the slave. It's for the jailer, it's for those in jail. If you know your heart, you'll ask that question, what must I do to be saved? And look at the final thing, the particular result. Two things happened to the first positive, then the negative. Verse 32. They spoke the word of the Lord to him. So the jailer receives Christ. They speak the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds, baptized at once, he and all his family. Verse 34. Then he brought them into the house. His house must have been connected to the, to the place and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Amazing. First, we see the jailer. We see this, we see this result of, of, of receiving Christ, wanting to know God better. I want to know the word of God. We, we share the word. Genuine faith brings with it a desire to know God, know him better, to know the gospel better. Yesterday, I had the privilege of doing that wedding, and I had an opportunity to tell this couple that, that the Bible was not written so that we can be better people. The Bible was not written that somehow, some way, he's given us a manual to better ourselves, to improve ourselves, so that we can commend ourselves to God, to somehow, essentially, to know what we must do. That's not the essential theme of the Bible. It's not, a, it's not, it's not how to earn God's favor. The great theme of the Bible is not how to be better people. It's a book of gospel. It's a book of gospel. The purpose is to show that God breaks into our lives. His grace breaks into your life, into your rebellious heart, and saves you from your sin. That's the good news. Call to repentance and trust in the work of Jesus Christ. And then when you take that into your heart, you want to hear it again and again and again. If you don't love the word, if you don't read the word, if you have no desire for the word, the Bible says check yourself. 
I'm not saying reading the Bible saves you. Please don't hear that. But genuine salvation will have a desire to know God better. If you have no desire to know God better, if you have no desire to be in his word, if you have no desire to hear from him through your word, check yourself. Check yourself. I'd be more than happy to talk with you. Look what else happens here. Verse 33. Jailer took him at night, washed the wounds, baptized at once he and his family, brought him to the house and gave him food. Amazing, man. Just amazing. Think about this. True gospel encounters not only make you hungry for the word, but make you compassionate. This once cruel man now is stooping and cleaning the wounds of his prisoners. He went from caring about what other people think in the jail or what other people think who were his boss. Now he's cleaning the wounds of his prisoners. Amazing. Amazing. And he feeds them. I mean, the scene for us, this narrative illustrates the reconciling work, this, this leveling work that the gospel brings. John Christendom says about the prisoner, about the jailer, he says, he washed and was washed. He washed them from their stripes and he himself was washed from his sins. To know God better means that we treat each other with care and compassion. We love and we're kind. And, and, and look, it doesn't keep to himself. He brings it to his family. He gets his family together. They hear the word of God. They respond in faith and the whole family gets baptized because the whole family, according to this text, received Christ. That's the order. Believe and be baptized. Believe and be baptized. That's, that's exactly what happens here. And finally, note, look what it says. They rejoiced. Underline that, verse 34. And he rejoiced. They rejoice together. Do you know that when Paul wrote the letter to Philippians shortly after this, what was the main theme? Rejoice. He writes in verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. I say it to you again, rejoice. Put that in perspective. Paul's writing this church whom this incident took place to rejoice. This wasn't a cliche. Paul had lived it. Paul had seen it. Paul had worked through it. Paul was singing, praising, and worshiping while being chained up and beat up in the prison. And he tells them, rejoice. All that God is doing in my life, all that God is doing through him, rejoice. Read Philippians, the book, in a different light, wouldn't you? But let me tell you, the reason why we don't rejoice, the reason why we don't rejoice is we don't recognize the gravity of our sin and the helplessness of our plight and see and experience the power of the gospel, that will bring joy. Okay, so think this through. Sometimes we do not experience the joy of the gospel in our life because we fail to see from God's perspective the gravity of our sin, the helplessness in our plight, and the regularly experiencing the power of the gospel that saves us. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day, every moment. Martin Lloyd-Jones read this, this psalm. You know, they preached the gospel to themselves in the Old Testament too. Psalm 42, 5 says this, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Why are you in turmoil within me? Then the psalmist says, Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes this. You're going to love this. He writes this according to that psalm. This is what he says. Have you realized, track with me, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of, talking to yourself. Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they're talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday. Somebody's talking. Who's talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. 
Now, this man's treatment in Psalm 42 was, instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why are you cast down, he says. His soul had been depressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and he says, self, listen for a minute. I will speak to you. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation. So to preach the gospel is to recognize your sinfulness and to accept that fact, but then to run, to flee, to cling to Jesus. What does that look like? What can separate me, self, from the love of God in Christ? What can, what can separate me? Preach the gospel to yourself. Who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, self? Will he not freely in Christ give us all things? Who can charge me? Who can bring a charge against the elect self? It is God who justifies. Preaching the gospel takes Romans 4 and, and presses it in. It says, blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord never counts against him. We've got to start speaking the gospel to ourselves. It is Christ who died for sin. It was Christ who cleanses me from sin. Who will condemn me? Who will judge me? Who will point fingers at me? It is Christ who died for me. Self. And then we finish, we look at the negative. The last few verses, verse 35. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have said, you can go. Therefore, come on out, go in peace. Paul said, no, nah, I don't think so. They've beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have shown us, thrown us in prison. And they do not throw us out secretly. No, nah, I don't think so. Let them come themselves and take us out. See what the story's going, right? The police reported these words to the magistrates. Those are the rod beaters. And they were afraid. Now they're afraid. When they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came out and apologized. That seems about fair. We beat you and we apologize. Okay. And, and, and they took them out of the next and to leave the city. Verse 40. So they went out of the prison visited Lydia. And when they had uh, seen the brothers, they encouraged them. And they finally departed. So Philippi, Roman colony... They're in crazy trouble. You can't beat Roman citizens. It's so bad that they can strip Philippi of its Roman citizenship. It's really bad. Everyone's in trouble. It's kind of ironic. Paul did nothing wrong. He gets thrown in jail. These guys are lawbreakers, and they want to just make believe nothing happened. A big switch here happened, right? It was serious stuff. And Paul's like, you know what? You beat me publicly. I need repentance publicly. In fact, get the whole city together when you bring me out and pat me on the back and say, okay, little guy, you can go your own way. We want the whole world to see this. So they give him an apology. They say, you know, you can go. So they leave the jail. They finally accept it. They go to Lydia's house and they encourage them. And I mean, think about this church. He's out of prison. He goes to Lydia's house. Man, you got jailers, slave girls, women, business women in this church plant. What a church. What a church. Now, there has been debate. We're going to end on this. But there's been debate, and you can read them in the commentaries. Why did not Paul, why did not Paul, why didn't Paul, when he got that first lash, or when the guy pulled it out of his, wherever he pulled it out of, and he's going to beat Paul, Paul didn't go, wait, I'm a Roman citizen. You can't beat me. I mean, why did Paul wait till after his beating, till they were bringing him out of the jail, and then tell him, I'm a Roman citizen. Why did he wait? Some say maybe he didn't have a chance. Maybe they were whooping him up so good, he's like he couldn't even speak. I don't really see that in the text. Okay, I don't really see that in the text. I don't think that's the reason. 
Paul, maybe he wanted to, you know, wanted to spare this young Christian community of having a good reputation. They didn't do anything wrong, so he don't want to look like the Christian movement, this new church, had done something wrong. Maybe that was the reason. Or maybe, just maybe, like Jesus, Paul kept quiet because if he had avoided persecution, he would have left the Philippian brethren exposed to it. In other words, Paul was beaten and his blood was shed so that the church at Philippi didn't have to go through that. That's a glimpse of the gospel. Isaiah 54, 53, Surely Jesus bore our griefs, he carried our sorrow, yet we have stricken him, smitten and afflicted by God. He was pierced for my transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement, the beatings that brought us peace. By his beating, his wounds, we are healed. All of us as sheep have gone astray, everyone to his own way. But the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Paul's beating may have been for a season, bringing peace and safety from the rods to those in Philippi. But Jesus' beating has brought us eternal peace with God. He was beaten with rods and hung on a cross where he was not just imprisoned. He was on the cross experiencing God's wrath, experiencing God turning his face away from him when he cries out, why have you forsaken me? And then he didn't go to jail. He went into the ground. Three days later, rises victorious over sin, death, and hell. So what Paul experiences for the moment, Jesus experiences eternally. What Paul gives them was peace for the moment, peace in the city. What God gives us is peace eternally with our eternal God. Paul's beating may have spared son for a season. God's, Jesus, son, his beating spared us for eternity. Maybe you've never trusted Christ. Maybe you're here saying, I have no joy, I have no encouragement, I have no compassion. I'm one of those guys, I need that. I need to have an encounter with God, I need to know God, I need to love God. We're going to respond in a minute, I'm going to ask you to, to leave your life down, lay your life down and trust Jesus Christ as your only Lord and Savior. What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, trust the Lord Jesus Christ. He died for your sins, he rose for your sins. He forgives you of your sins. Turn from your sins. Trust him. Turn from your sin and trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. But let me ask you this question, family. Who do you need to forgive? Do you really believe that you're following a man, the God-man, who forgave his murderers? Is that at the center of your life? Are you living that way? Are you forgiving those? Are you absorbing as Jesus did? Or are you holding vengeance toward one another? So if you've never trusted Christ, today's the day. If there's someone you need to let go of, today's the day. I'm going to close in prayer, and that's what we're going to do. The pastor elders are going to be in the back by the doors, double doors. We're going to sing. We're going to respond. By faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll be back there. If you want to pray with us while the songs are going on, come on back. We'll pray with you. If you've never received Christ, we'll lead you through that as well. If there's someone you need to forgive and you need to make that public, we'll be there to hear your, your cry, your prayer. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this power encounter. First with Lydia, the wealthy, the, the rich. There are some here, Lord, that think they have it all.
but they don't have you. Father, we pray that you would open their heart to see the glory and treasure of Christ. Everything else will be gone. Everything else will be finished. There'll be no more. But you are eternal. You are our greatest treasure. And Father, there are some here like this little girl, just confused. Lord, that need you. They're just oppressed. They need Christ. Pray that your spirit would empower them to, to be free. And Father, there are some here like this jailer. Who needs Christ? Who, who needs to forgive? Who needs to see the power of the gospel in their lives through forgiveness of sins? All of us need forgiveness of sin, Lord. So we pray. Father, as we sing, respond, you would get glory. We would get joy. Your spirit would, would show us Christ. We would treasure him, love him, worship him above all things. Help us, empower us, we pray. In Jesus' precious name, amen.